This is the All In Gospel Podcast, where we go through the Bible chapter by chapter, verse by verse, every week. If you like the podcast, go ahead and subscribe or join us at allingospel.com. Enjoy your Bible study. Blessings. All right, so we're going to be in Exodus 34. And I'm going to have to angle my paper so I get light. So. Oh, I can do better. Can you? You're going to hold that up the whole time? You just click. <coughs> oh, maybe that wouldn't click. Okay, right. well, we'll just do that. All right, so that said, we're in Exodus 34. <laughs> oh, that's a good idea. You got that? Maybe. Um, speaking of shining lights, tonight we're going to get to one of the more curious parts of the Bible, which is Moses' shining face. Um, and so we'll get to that towards the end of the chapter. And where we're at in Exodus is the people have been brought out of Egypt. They were given a covenant. They broke it immediately and symbolically speaking Moses breaks the tablets of that first covenant and it occurred to me like the interesting part about this that now we have a second covenant the people repent and they're going to do it again but unlike the first covenant in the second covenant we now have grace so under a covenant of grace because God's actually forgiven the people he made a covenant they broke it then he forgives them and makes a second covenant that's kind of an interesting thing because that covenant of grace is one that's going to get carried all the way through into the new covenant. So Moses is going to, in verse 1, he's going to make two new tablets to represent that new covenant. And the Lord said to Moses, cut two tablets of stone like the first ones, and I will write on these tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. (laughs) Just God points that out to Moses. Nice job. Um, So Moses broke the first set in Exodus 32, 19, if you want to write in your cross-references. So be ready in the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself to me there on top of the mountain. And no man shall come up with you. Let no man be seen throughout all the mountain. Let neither flocks nor herds feed before that mountain. Again, this is kind of the same as Exodus 19, is that they're restating a new covenant. So no one goes before God except for Moses. I wonder if there are times when we have, Um, Moses is going to intercede for the people of Israel here, and he's standing in the gap for those people. And we saw those prayers in Exodus 33 that he made, really powerful prayers, where he's putting the people of Israel before himself even in standing there. And I wonder if we have times when there are other people that should be interceding for us in our lives, like Moses does for the people of Israel, and that those prayers are happening. Or another wonder is, are there times where we should be interceding in prayer for other people in our lives? And we should be taking on that role. But there's something about that role of that intercessory prayer where you pray for other people or other people pray for you, um, which takes a couple things. One, it takes a humble heart to ask someone to pray for you and say, hey, I'm struggling with something. Could you please pray for me in this? And it also takes kind of a, a recognition that when that happens and God actually moves or things change, that you then go back to that person and let them know what's going on. That said, Moses is going to be praying for the people. And I think sometimes that's because when we're in breach of covenant, like the people of Israel were, we get too close to the issue. And when, especially when we're struggling with issues of sin in our life, we're too close to it sometimes. And having somebody else pray for us helps us to deal with that in a way that maybe we can't even pray for it the right way. Um, and when Moses, or when God's saying, nobody else comes in the mountain but you, essentially the rest of Israel's broken covenant with God. So at this point, like Moses, you can come up and talk to me, but I don't want even your sheep to come near me at this point. So he, Moses, verse 4, cut two tablets of stone like the first ones. And then Moses rose early in the morning and went up to Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hand the two tablets of stone. 
So Moses is praying, Israel's repenting, God's going to restore the covenant. Now, the Lord decided, descended in the cloud and stood with him there. Remember, the cloud is kind of an upright object as we've seen it. And he stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. So the same Shekinah glory cloud that we saw in Exodus 13, we saw it in Exodus 19 on top of Mount Sinai, and it stood upright in front of the tent in Exodus 33, where we were last week. Now it's up with him on top of the mountain again, and God is keeping his promise. Remember last chapter, Moses was praying with God. God kind of relents and says, okay, I won't fry all of them. And then he says, and then Moses continues to ask, well, can you show me your glory? And I'd love to see your glory. It would be a wonderful thing, a marvelous thing to see, your wonder and your glory. And it's the same marvelous, Catherine, you weren't here, that's the one that Sarah used back when she's saying, is there anything too marvelous for our God? And Moses asked for that. I want to see your marvel. I want to see your glory. And here we're going to get to see it. This is what God does to show Moses' glory, which is an answer to the prayer in chapter 33. So here it goes, verse 6. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, and abounding in goodness and truth. That, by the way, that little passage is quoted by David in Psalm 86. Keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving the iniquity and transgressions and sin, and by no means clearing the guilty, visiting iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Okay, there's a lot here. In fact, this is the kind of verse that pastors will do a whole sermon series on, where one week they do long-suffering and one week they do that. We're not going to do that. Um, but you could unpack each of these natures of God that they proclaim. And one way to look at this is, is and this is kind of cynical, is God arrogant by saying all these nice things for himself? And one kind of way to deal with arrogance is it's only arrogant if it's false. But when it's truth, that's not arrogance. It's just proclaiming the truth that God is these things. And we get to see more of a revelation of God than we've seen in the Bible so far about the nature of God and what kind of God we're dealing with. And if you think of what this must have sounded like to Moses, remember he grew up hearing about all the Egyptian gods. And it's hard to say that Ra is long-suffering, right? So when God's introducing himself, do it in contrast to these other kind of gods that Moses would have grown up hearing about. So God proclaims, he uses words, to reveal his truth. And we keep seeing that again and again and again, that when God's going to proclaim his truth, he uses words. And some of those words like these, Moses is writing down. So it's not a feeling and it's not an emotion that Moses feels. He actually hears the word of God because it's proclaimed. That's an advance for the people of Israel. Now we hear a proclamation that we haven't really seen anything like this since Abraham back in Genesis, that God's giving this proclamation, this knowledge of himself. So what's so special about God? God's telling his character here, and he reveals it to Moses. Part of the glory of God is his forgiveness of those that repent. And that's the amazing part, unlike a lot of other gods that, that would be competing with Yahweh at this point in history. Only a God that knows the hearts of a human being can do this with, as it says, abounding goodness and truth. Because what if God doesn't know the heart and he makes the wrong decision? But in this case, this is a God that knows our hearts. That's part of his nature. Thus, he can make judgments and he can save or forgive the thousands that he wants to, and he can hold other people guilty because they actually are. Again, that would seem really horrible if a human judge suddenly judged the whole earth that way. But a God that knows our hearts can actually do that with perfect accuracy. We don't get innocent people sitting on that death row in this situation. So the Lord, Jehovah, is the name that gets used here. It's used with the patriarchs, so that part's not new. 
It gets used three times. I don't know if you picked up on that, my people who like numbers. Um, so there's a sentence here that there's one speaker, but there's two objects of description, the Lord and the Lord God. One aspect of God then is revealing the other two aspects of God. Okay, so if you're looking at a Trinitarian, or a, a tr uh, what's the word? Trinitarian. A triune God. We have two gods making a, a one speaker in that sentence, but notice that there's two objects of the sentence, which is kind of cool. And then that iniquity and transgression and sin, they're all treated the same in the sentence, but notice that there's three different types of trespass, right? There's iniquity, there's transgression, and there's sin, and they're different objects. Again, you could do a whole series of talks unpacking each of those, looking out throughout the whole Bible. But if we keep moving, we'll actually get through the whole Bible and we'll get to those things. But those are the things that will be throughout the Bible picked up on and they get mentioned differently. And there's different sacrifices in Leviticus for each of these kinds of sin. Um, so it's one thing to kind of just, we'll get into it when we get into Leviticus. Because God forgives abundantly, the only, the truly unrepentant then are punished. And when they're punished, it's just, right? Sin, is, it, it, sin isn't then ignored ever. And that's part, I think, the nature of God is he won't ignore sin. He'll be long-suffering, he might be patient about it, but he will deal with it, even if it takes him generations to get to it. And that phrase, the children's children, is a common one that we'll see throughout the Old Testament that kind of just means that God doesn't forget either. He might be patient, but he also will deal with things. So Moses, verse 8, made haste and bowed his head towards the earth and worshiped. I like that this is just his instinct. When God reveals his nature, the instinct of humanity is to hurry up and worship and get to that business of worshiping God. Then he said, if now I've found grace in your sight, O Lord, let my Lord, pr I pray, go among us, even though we are a stiff-necked people and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us as your inheritance. Moses is still appealing that God's going to deal with the nation of Israel and not just Moses. Did you catch that there? He's making haste to do it. If God, if your grace saves people, then save us. And then your glory gets revealed. If he took a wealthy, prosperous, healthy group of people and made them his people, there's not a lot of glory for God because the humans have made it happen. But if he takes a stiff-necked people, a bunch of nonsense, sinning, golden calf-making, complaining Israelites, and turns them into a mighty nation, then all the glory goes to God. Not only that, if he keeps that nation alive through all of human history, that's even more glory to God because they're not necessarily a people that have successfully carved out their own country on this planet. In fact, they might be the only people that has a country on this planet that didn't carve it out for themselves, right? And yet they sit right in the middle of almost every news broadcast, right? There they are right in the middle of the world at the center of world news and they barely deserve to exist in human terms. In God's term, there they still are. So that's the appeal Moses is making. If you make these people survive, you get all the glory. Um, so I think that's just kind of cool. Moses, in his response, by the way, knows and he names the sin. And when you name sin, like he calls the Israelites a stiff-necked people, he's naming their sin. They are stubborn and they are willful. And once you name the sin, it loses all its power because by naming sin, you've humbled yourself. And you've admitted with truth what's going on in, in the lives of people. It removes the power of that sin. And I think when you ask for forgiveness or name your sin to God, that allows room for forgiveness. You can't for, for really forgive somebody unless they've asked for forgiveness. 
you can have grace or you can forget about it or you can let it go. But if people don't ask for forgiveness, it's really hard to forgive them directly to their face. So Moses, by naming the sin, does those three things. He humbles, he removes the power of that sin, and he allows for forgiveness and grace of God. So if God's good, and then we ask him to be good, that's a reasonable prayer to make. God forgive me, and he's a forgiving God, that's a reasonable prayer to make. The problem is most people don't make that prayer happen, and they don't confess their sin. So it continues to have power in their life, and they're imprisoned by it. So the covenant's going to get renewed. Luckily, or this would be a very different Bible, God relents and says, yes, I can go for this. So verse 10, and he said, behold, I make a covenant. This is a change because now it's not we're going to make a covenant. It's God saying, I'm going to make a covenant. And it reminded me, remember when Abraham was making his covenant with God and God like waited on Abraham until Abraham fell asleep. And then God did the covenant rites all by himself to basically say, I'll make a covenant with you. It doesn't really matter if you make it with me back because I'll keep my promise to you. So he said, behold, I will make a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such as I have not been done on the earth. I also like how God's still distancing himself from Israel. Because when he says before your people, he's talking to Moses. So Moses, before this people you're praying for, I'll do these things. Nor in any nation and all the, na- all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord for it's an awesome thing that I will do with you. That awesome is the one from that thing up there. I'm going to do a wonder. Um, I'm going to do something marvelous. So the terms are renewed. Uh, The first time they did it, they blew it really quick. Um, But there was no tabernacle the first time they did it. We've read about the tabernacle. It's an idea in Moses' head, and he's got the plans for it. But there's no means by which to do those sacrifices. There's no bronze altar in existence yet. So this forgiveness comes purely by grace, not by ceremony and not by religion. So that's interesting. God can, and he does, make a one-sided covenant, just like he did with Abraham. In a one-sided covenant, God knows it will be kept. So these promises he knows will go on throughout all time or until God chooses to do it. So here's God's plan to glorify himself. He's going to use Israel to do it, and he will do marvels. He will do hard things. By the way, that reference is Genesis 18, 14. He will do wonders. It's the same word that got used in Exodus 3, 20. Um, so there's two other uses of this word, this, this wonderful, these awesome things, these wonders that it will do. The first use was a positive one when he's talking about making a baby with two, with Abraham and Sarah. The second one was kind of a negative one. So God doing marvels isn't always a great thing. He did marvels with Egypt with the plagues too. So those marvels were not necessarily great things. So in other words, God's not saying he's going to bless Israel. He's saying, I will do wonders with Israel. If they're faithful and they keep the covenant, he will do blessings. If they're not faithful and they continue to embarrass him, he will curse them. Either way, God's going to get glorified because the more they defy God and the more they get persecuted, the more it shows that God cares what happens to this nation. Historically speaking, that's happened all through history. And there have been times where they've been slated for execution by various nations of the world, and they've been unsuccessful. But Israel has suffered historically more than any other people on on the earth. Um, And they've also prospered at periods of time more than any other people on the earth. And right now we're in a season where Israel is prospering. They're figuring out how to irrigate a desert right now. So the fact that they're taking sand and turning it into fruit is amazing. Their medical advances are more than any other nation in the world. And a list of Nobel Prizes and various awards in various academic categories they're cleaning up based on uh, way more than they should be for the percentage of the population they represent. 
They're absolutely doing incredible things. And I wouldn't even know that Israel's honoring God directly right now. You know, it's one of those things where they're still a fairly secular nation, um, but it's an awesome thing that's happening there. The word awesome at the end of that passage, the end of verse 10, for it's an awesome thing that I will do to you. Awesome in our language is always almost, almost always positive, right? Oh, that's awesome. That's great. Um, and again, a lot like wonder being a fairly neutral thing that power will be exhibited. I will do a wonderful thing. Awesome is actually in their language, mostly a negative word. So yare is one word. So it says for it is an awesome thing. That's all one word in the Hebrew, yare. And it means terrible, fearful, or a cause for revering something. Like when you see a bomb go off, it's a terrible thing. It's an awesome thing. When you see, um, I don't know, when a door shuts on your hand, it's an awesome, terrible thing. But the power of it makes you fear the door. Does that make sense? You retract a little bit when something awesome is done in front of you. Or when something hits so hard, you can feel the air come off of it. A bass speaker at a concert where you can fear the air just pumping into your face. That's an awesome, terrible thing. It's usually a connotation that goes with fear and dread every other time we see it in the Bible. And there's no reason we shouldn't see it that way here, for it's an awesome thing that I will do with you. And for Moses, that is something that would cause you to make haste to worship. Like, may that awesome thing be something that happens a little further away. May I observe it and not experience it, right? It's not nowhere near as painful to watch somebody else shut their finger in a door, right? <laughs> but you can still fear the door. Observe what I command to you this day, verse 11. This is still God talking. Behold, I'm driving out from before you the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. <coughs> Uh, the initial plan of God is to drive the people out. This gets problematic later because the Israelites disobey and then they have to do war with these people. But the original plan, remember this 34 verse 11, God was going to drive them out and there wasn't supposed to be a lot of war with these people. They would show up and they would just be gone and God would just kind of clear the land for them. And there's lots of ways God has done that throughout history. Another thing to note is God has kept his promise with this verse. None of these people still exist on the earth. In fact, we'll get into Canaanite research here later tonight because I geeked out on that. Um, but these people just, there's barely even a written record of these people. And with the Canaanites, there's no written record. All we have is archaeology. So these people were there, they did exist, they don't anymore, and they're just gone. But the Israelites are still around. Observe what I command is always the key for God when he's talking to people. So again, now that we're in an Exodus, we're starting to see patterns. And God seems to say that a relationship with me means obeying me. Right? Because if I say do it this way and you don't do it, then that's defiance. So there's going to be seven reminders that God gives in the next few verses. So take heed to yourself, verse 12, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land where you're going, lest it will be a snare in your midst. Don't make deals with the Canaanites. And there's reasons for this. A snare is a negative thing, but anyone about to walk into a snare always thinks it's awesome. And I just thought about the nature of sin on these things. Snares in our lives always look harmless and appealing, but they're still snares. And when God says, don't do these things, and then we still do them because they're harmless and it's not a big deal, um, those are the kinds of things that look harmless, look like they're not going to do anything, but then they entrap you into a certain way of thinking. 
They entrap you into looking just like the world so you don't stand out anymore. They take away your shine. And this is where God's kind of telling Moses, watch out for these things. And at the end of the chapter, God, he's going to get a shine. Moses is really, literally going to come out glowing. And that's where one of these things are kind of these warnings, these reminders. Um, and I think we all wrestle with sin in our lives. So it's not something we need to, I mean, we can all think of those examples in our own lives where we thought it wasn't a big deal, but then the next thing you know, you turn around and you're kind of entrapped by it, right? If we're ignorant of what's going on with the snare, it looks just like the best thing in the world when we first do it. If you're wise to snares and you're like bug, like the roadrunner, then you see it coming and you can have some wisdom and now you can see the snare for what it is. It's not just this wonderful thing. It's a box of TNT that the coyote has put there. And if you're thinking about the spiritual battle for the souls of the world, you're always looking at the TNT when it comes to that stuff. Have some wisdom about it. Don't just walk into it. But, verse 13, you shall destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars, and cut down their wooden images. So the initial plan for violence came to inanimate objects that meant nothing and were empty, but would really get the Canaanites angry. Right, But if they're cleared out, they're going to leave behind these idols. Verse 14, For you shall worship no other god, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous god. For the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous god. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they play the harlot with their gods, and make sacrifices to their gods, and one of them invites you to eat out, eat to eat of his sacrifice. <laughs> What's interesting is these are verses you don't typically hear on a Sunday morning. This is not the kind of thing you come to church and, and talk about, but these are really vivid language being used by God. We see another name for God here, jealous. That's not the needy jealousy, like I have so many needs in my life, I'm jealous of your time. It's not the jealousy that comes out of insecurity. It's the jealousy that comes out of truth. If God's truthfully the God of the universe and he deserves your worship and you go and worship, sorry, Grant, airsoft guns, mm -hmm. that's a problem. And you're teasing with these things. But I don't think, he, in this particular sense, I don't think he's talking about entertainment. I think he's talking about these kinds of things in both literal and spiritual ways, and I'll get to that in a sec. At the end of the day, the thing you serve is the thing you worship. And you can flip that too. The thing you worship is the thing you're going to serve. It's what you're going to spend your time on. When you get those breaks, you do that. If you're not worshiping God, anything else is blasphemy because you're going around harloting with other things to worship. Verse 16, and you take of his daughters for your sons. And his, and by the way, that's why we don't talk about these things on Sunday mornings. This would like run people out of your church. Like if you got there and there's a whole sermon on this, like don't be a harlot. You know, that's kind of a harsh message, but it's God's truth. And you take of his daughters and your sons and his daughters play the harlot with their gods and you will make your sons play the harlot with their gods. In case you didn't get the harlot idea, it gets repeated here um, enough for you to make sure you don't miss this image. And you shall make no molded gods for yourself. So he's kind of reminding them of the Ten Commandments. First of all, let's really state this, but this time God states it with a lot more vividness, right? So let's talk about harlotry. <laughs> I think there's a reason God outlines this. Um, one is, remember when they did the golden calf, they called it Yahweh? They, they said, we need an image to represent this God that just led us out of Egypt. Let's worship the image. But if you think about it, they were creating a Jewish golden molden calf. 
right? Golden molded calf. And they were trying, they were calling it Yahweh. And you think to some degree that we need to take care that when we have worship traditions or any kind of tradition, that we're not calling something godly and it's really just idol worship. And we've seen segments of the Christian church do that throughout history, sometimes really blatantly. Like it's hard to go into a Catholic church and not see images all over the place, including images of Jesus, where they worship the image over the God himself. And it's something God says to watch out for. The other thing is false idol worship is often called Christianity. In fact, probably more often we need to watch out for this inside the church versus outside the church. I told you the story of my dad's church with the magic curtains, right? Like the, the stories, whenever you hear of a church splitting, ask why. Why did the church split? What was it splitting over? And it's almost always some sort of idol worship where that thing is more important than the people that go to the church. And it's super dangerous. I even talked to Steph. I'm like, at what point are we going to have some sort of tradition with our Bible study where people will be offended if we don't do it or we do do it? Like it's going to happen at some point because we're humans. And we like our rhythms and we like things to be regular, but take care to not make those your easy lure that might offer some satisfaction, but then it gets to be a worship. Our flesh is really strong and we do this all the time. I'm going to name, I think, the biggest idols that we have to watch out for. And I love the discussion on this because I could be wrong. This is my opinion. But I think it's consistent in the Bible that you see materialism being a big deal. Our concern over money often becomes the thing that we worry about more than God. Where's our paycheck going to come from? Where are we getting rent from? How are we going to do this? And it seems anti-intuitive to not worry about money and trust that God will provide. And it is anti-intuitive. Our flesh doesn't like to do that. Number two, our ego. We like to look good in front of people. And it's the more mature godly people that stop worrying about what they look like. I've actually been critiqued because if I have my doctorate, I shouldn't wear jeans anymore. And you think of something, you think, how stupid is that? What does that have anything to do with my research? But if you don't look the part in this world, people don't treat you that way. I should be using larger vocabulary now that I have a doctorate, right? I should sound like a doctor. Why? Am I trying to impress people with what I've learned? Isn't getting your doctorate to find out a field of research and to learn how to ask questions in the field? It's not to have all the answers. It's that we should be the great question askers of our society. But that takes a humility to ask a question that we're losing. We're, we're making an idol out of degrees and ego and pride and training, right? Just wait until you're 30 and some 20-year-old comes in and has a better idea than you. Now, everything in your flesh just wants to be, who do you think you are, young person, right? Our ego gets in the way and it becomes an idol. And then lastly, worldly entertainment. There's nothing wrong with entertainment, but we are an entertainment society. I think even more so than a materialistic society. We're easy to accuse ourselves of materialism, but then we spend six hours a day entertaining ourselves, right? What are we worse at, materialism or entertainment? And entertainment is not necessarily what we are called to do with our days, right? And it's an amazing thing. It got really quiet here all of a sudden. Like, we feel convicted about that because we all do it. We live in a culture that entertains itself to death. And we're going to go all the way to our graves. And, and I'm terrified of the day when God says, well, I took a time counter of everything you did in your life and I split it into a pie graph. You see the huge part of the pie that's called entertainment? I got an issue with that. Look at the time called ministry. Oh, you can't see it? That's because it's such a small part of your life. 
And then you think, oh, well, I'm halfway through my life. If I'm going to have a midlife crisis, I should transform my life into being one that's more of ministry than of entertaining myself. So if I'm going to entertain myself, let that be balanced with the amount of time I serve other people and I take care of other people's needs. And maybe, just maybe, my pie graph will change when I get to heaven. And I know that's a horrible and even not good theology to think of that because I think God forgives. But I think God will forgive and then he'll say, oh, and let me just show you your pie graph that you thought about your whole life. <laughs> I don't want to see it, Lord. I will make haste to fall on the ground and worship God because that's the only thing you do in the face of God's truth. Playing the harlot. If you want a couple of reference to this spiritually speaking, to play the harlot spiritually is to do what I just talked about. But if you want a couple of references on that, the entire chapter of Jeremiah 2 um, and the entire book of Hosea uses the imagery of harlotry to represent sin and idol worship, giving your heart to someone else besides who you're supposed to be married to. There's also a literal concern here that comes with the land that God's bringing them into. Harlotry is actually a huge part of what's going on with the Canaanites. J. Vernon McGee says the Canaanites had idol, like harlotry going on like a dog has fleas. And if you listen to Jay Vernon, he's like a small town country pastor. He's hilarious like that. It's like a dog with fleas. The Canaanites had this all over the place. But the Canaanites had gods where they believed in this concept where, well, I'll get to that in a sec. Literally, they had temple prostitutes and sex rituals throughout their religious practices. And we know this not only from archaeology, but we know this from the historical records of other neighboring nations that were around these people. People feared the Canaanites not so much for their military might, but for their sick, twisted practices, right? It was like having like a black magic shaman living next door to you in the townhouse unit. You know, it's not like you're scared they're going to hit you. You're just scared that they're freaky, weird people. And that was the Canaanites, right? There's no written records of them, but in the archaeology, we have skeletons from Sidon, Lebanon, Carthage. A lot of them, when they moved out of this area, they actually went to northern Africa. So we have Carthagian records all over the place. So we know a lot about their religions. And even in 2017, the American Journal of Human Genetics looked at DNA work of all those skeletons, and they found a few things. One of the things that they found in some of these graves and things they dug up is that the priesthood order had total and absolute power in Canaanite traditions. So the priests of Canaan dominated that society, and the way they dominated was largely sexual. And this is where it gets really twisted. And I'm, I think this is important to know because why would God want to push out the Canaanites and give the Israelites a land? What is it about these people that would be something where God would say, I need them gone, and I don't want you marrying and I don't want you playing harlot with their daughters or with their sons. They're, he's actually talking literally here too because they were ruled by the god Dagon and Asheroth. And we're going to see them a lot in the Old Testament. Those gods were, um, there were other ones that had these Baals. The Baals were all the smaller gods that were born of these two, right? And um, the goddess of war and sex was Asheroth. And then there was, of course, the the Anat, which was a savage god, a god of savagery. They had a sea god called Lotan, or you could call him Yam. And then they had Mot, the god of death in the underworld. And the way you appease Mot, or the way you appease Dagon or Chemosh, was you killed things and gave them death. That's what they wanted. So the Canaanites gave them death. The way you pleased Asheroth and the sea god is you gave them life, which was sex. 
So you had sex, you made sex, you forced sex on people as an offering. So if you didn't want it, then it's an offering to that God. So they'd find weaker people in their society and they would rape them in front of their gods. It's sick practice, right? So the Canaanites would then appeal to their dead relatives with these practices, hoping for things to happen. So when they say, don't play the harlot with their gods, they literally, God's actually talking about a real practice where you'd go into their temples and you'd do these things to be part of their worship, right? They had priests of very, the priests were separated into categories by sexual practice. So they had the normal priests, the castrato, which were castrated priests, right? Um, they also had homosexual priests, the Asinus, which I think is, I'm sorry, with the English language, it's kind of an appropriate name. They had the Nedidus, which were neutered priestesses. They had the Sinishat Zikram, which were lesbian transvestite priests. And they had the Quadishu, the fem- female temple prostitutes for the heterosexuals. So their priests were organized by the sexual practices they were willing to do in the temple or, or cut to do, right, with, with castration. So during the dry season, when death covered the land, when Mott would triumph over Baal, forcing him with to, to withdraw into the depths of the earth, Baal and the rain would return only after a not conquered Mott and Baal could, could mate with Asheroth. They kept having sex until spring came because it's what they did. It's how they did it. And that's, that sympathetic magic is part of Baalite traditions. Um, and a lot of this comes up from the work of T. Wilkerson, who kind of puts this together. There's alleged things, but I, the more I looked, I couldn't actually find this. But in the Christian community, they talk about archaeology where these skeletons had venereal diseases running rampant through their bodies to the, to the point where it was affecting their bone structure and their DNA, right? So the literal sickness in their bodies was stuff you could detect. That said, I wasn't able to find the actual journal articles. I could find lots of people that would say that about the Canaanites, but I couldn't actually find the research that showed me that in any sort of scientific way. And that happens in the Christian world. We like to believe things because the Bible says it, but it's not actually confirmed with research, so I didn't actually find that. But what we did find was the mass murder of infants in Canaanite religions. And this is the Carthanian ruins. They found entire pits filled with babies from one to three months old. So there seemed to be a ceremonial period of time when they would kill children, right? I'll come around to a point here, which is what the Bible says too. Jeremiah 19.5, they built the high places of Baal in order to burn their sons in the fire as a whole burnt offerings to Baal, something I had not commanded or spoken of and that had never even come into my heart. Jeremiah 19.5, Deuteronomy 12.31, they do for their gods every detestable thing that Jehovah hates. They even burn their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. Literally, this is one of the things that Christians got upset about at the Colosseum in Rome they put a a statue of Moloch up, which was a Canaanite god that would make bronze statues with their hands out. And you'd put the babies in the hands of the statue and then you'd cook the statue up like a frying pan. And the metal of the statue would burn until it melted the child in its hands. And that's how they did their sacrifices. Is this making you sick? This is why God didn't want them connecting with the Canaanites. We don't want you to have any part of this nonsense. This kind of sickness is what was going on before Noah when he destroyed the world, right? And that sickness seems to have re-risen with the Canaanites, right? There's, so there's a biblical record of these destructions in their temples. Um, and we should expect that there would be 
little archaeological evidence in Israel because if the Israelites did what they were supposed to do, they destroyed all these temples. They took down these statues. They came into the land, they wrecked it all. And lo, the archaeology in Israel shows very little of these things. Sidon is the only site where we have Canaanite temples. But you go to Carthage and we have tons of them because they existed there. And Carthage rose in power, even challenged the Roman Empire at one point. So they migrated there. That was around the fourth century. One of the other things, and this isn't just the biblical record, Greek historian Clitarchus in the fourth century writes this about the Canaanites. There in their midst stands a bronze statue of Kronos. His hands extend over a bronze barrier. Kronos was the new name for Moloch, right? The flames of which engulf the child. And when the flames fall on the body, the limbs contract and the open mouth seems almost to be laughing until the contracted body slips quietly into the brazier. Thus, it's the grin of the child while it's burning that's called sardonic laughter since they die laughing, according to the Canaanites. This is sick. Don't hang out with these people. Don't marry these people. Don't leave them in the land. I'll drive them out before you so you don't have to be part of this sickness. I don't even want that image in my head. Right? It's hard enough to read it. Can you imagine having these people in your town doing this stuff at their high places? Right? Kronos was a regional name for Baal, Haman, and, and the chief of the Carthagian gods. In 1921, the French did research there. They found one of the Tophets, a burial site for the Canaanites, that was filled with the remains of over 20,000 babies, all between one and three months off. Uh, uh, archaeologist Unger writes, excavations in Palestine then also have uncovered piles of ashes and the remains of infant skeletons in cemeteries around the heathen alt altars, pointing to widespread practice of cruel abomination. Uh, and that's in archaeology in 1964. Dr. Quinn reviewed the death of over 240 of these urns and found that they were between one and three months old. Right? So there's a propensity for sin with these people that has grown to this horrible false worship. Horrible false worship. It was also convenient if you wanted to have massive sex rituals to deal with the massive amount of unwanted babies that would come from that, right? The more freedom people had in sex with no rules, no regulations, no boundaries, no marital contracts, there was virtually no family unit in Canaanite society. Remember when Lot the most righteous man in Sodom and Gomorrah offers his daughters up as harlots because that practice was so much part of what he did. This is the thing God has a problem with, with the breakdown of like normal, healthy structures around sex, relationship, and marriage. You have a bunch of babies that nobody wants because there aren't people that feel responsible for those babies, right? So now you have a religious practice to deal with those babies. Sound familiar? Tons of free sex, Lots of horrible things happening to kids. There's an effect to that. There's a thing. I'll go back to verse 18 in our chapter. God gives them another reminder, which we've heard about before. In the face of the Canaanites, you're going to live differently. Remember, verse 18, the feast of unleavened bread. You shall keep that. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread as I commanded you. In the appointed time in the month of Abib and in the month of Abib you came out of Egypt. You're going to, remember leaven had to do with sin. You're going to eat this bread that's pure, right? Instead of the Canaanite nonsense and the harlotry going on over here, you're going to have an awesome feast together and just the joy of that, like eating dinner together with your friends. It's, it's, it's joyful. It's peaceful, right? Verse 19, all that open the womb 
are mine. Every firstborn male among you, your, your livestock, whether ox or sheep, but the firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, and if you will not redeem him, then you shall break his neck, and all the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem. So you don't kill your kids. See how this is a contrast to the Canaanites? Right? You, these kids you, that the Canaanites killed, they're my kids. Don't do that. Don't destroy them, right? And your kids, you're not actually going to kill your sons. You're going to redeem them. Yes, they're mine. You're going to sacrifice them to me, but you're going to pay a small fee, kind of like we pay hospitals when we have kids at the hospital. You're going to pay a small fee when you make a baby, but that's my baby. You don't need to put it on an altar and kill it for me. You're going to redeem it for me, right? See how this is a contrast to Canaanite religion? Um, and by the way, he's already said this in Exodus 13 and Exodus 22, that the firstborns are God's. It's a reminder that he's redeemed them. He's bought them. He's paid a price. He's taken them from Egypt. Um, and none shall appear before me empty handed. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. So instead of doing all this nasty stuff down at the temples that humans want to do, instead of your weird parties, you're going to work really hard. And that's the solution. And there's this interesting balance between sin and playfulness, which is something I study is playfulness. But there's also this idea of work and purity, that when you work hard and you do things, and that's not a call to be workaholics or to be weird with that, but it is a call that we should be working and trusting God with what we do. Our job's to work. God will provide. Be productive. Bear fruit. So God has, uh, that. there's another reminder that he gives. And he's going to give a reminder of this, right? Um, the seventh day is this symbol or reminder of what God has done. That seventh day of rest is important. And in each covenant, I think at this point we can kind of go back and look at this. In each covenant, God has given something that people should look at and re remember the covenant by. So with Noah, remember after the flood, there was a symbol that you should look at the rainbow and remember God's not going to flood the world again. He's made a promise. With Abraham, there was circumcision, right? But this is a promise, and when you see circumcision, you're supposed to remember that God's claimed us, right? And now we have this symbol of, which is much nicer than circumcision, Sabbath. I'm going to give you one day to rest, and every week you're supposed to remember that you're mine and that you can rest in God and not have to worry about the violence and the nastiness around you. So an entire day, even at harvest time, I think that's important to note, Wait, that's the next verse. Oh, no. In plowing time and in harvest time, you shall rest. In, in case you mistook this, and this is, I think, a hard thing because as a country, as a culture, we are bad about Sabbath. If we're supposed to rest for one day a week in plowing time and in resting time, that's like saying during your summer break and during finals week, you're supposed to keep your day a rest, right? So plowing your harvesting time is their busy season. That's that time of year where you really could use that day back. And God's just saying an entire day, harvest included, no exceptions. And you're supposed to do that in this covenant because that's how you're going to remember that we have a covenant. This is the Mosaic covenant. Covenant, Interestingly, in the New Testament, Sabbath is not mentioned as part of the new covenant, right? Because we're supposed to find our rest in Jesus. So it shifts a little bit, just like it shifted from circumcision with Abraham to Sabbath with Moses as the symbol. And it shifts again with Jesus that he becomes our Sabbath, right? So verse 22, you shall observe the feast of weeks 
Let me say one thing about Sabbath too. Here's the weird thing, and we've seen this in the last year and a half. People that take some time and make it sacred, God pays it back. And I don't know how he pays it back because literally you're, lo- you're losing some hours. You go to church, you're going to lose two, three hours. But people that take that time and stay faithful to it, God still blesses it. And I think that's amazing. And we should see that when God does that and celebrate it and just say, look at what God does in our lives and how we do it. Those of you that are freaky and come here on a Sunday night too, you're crazy people. You're actually sacrificing even more time to study God's word and to do that. And I believe God will bless you for that. And it won't be fireworks and, you know, you know, trumpets blaring or anything like that. But it'll just be week after week, year after year. You'll find that God just blesses your life and you have peace. And Steph and I noticed that the people that tend to miss church when we go to church on Sunday morning, people kind of miss all the time. It's because they're frantic and they have no rest and no peace. When you cast your cares upon the Lord, then you can take that time and not worry and be anxious about what you're missing because you're getting what God's made you to be, which is worshiping him. So if you put him first and you seek him first, everything else gets added to you. And I couldn't find that Bible verse because I was lazy and I thought of it today. Verse 22, and you shall observe the feast of weeks. So another reminder, here's another feast you're going to observe. And the first fruits of the wheat harvest and the feast of ingathering at the year's end. Three times in the year, all your men shall appear before the Lord, the Lord God of Israel. So this is another thing where he's saying, I need you to trust me. And I want you to give me your time by keeping these three feasts, Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. And we'll get into those in Leviticus. And there's just not enough time to get into all three of those now. But there's an ongoing preparation that needs to happen for these feasts. If you think of like, because I was chatting after church today and Steph's like, we got to go. I got to start working on dinner for tonight. She's got to prepare for dinner so that we can minister to you and feed you some awesome food and have Grant make barbecue sauce, right? So there's preparation for these feasts that has to happen. They're thinking about when there's three big feasts a year where you're going to feed the nation, that means you got to grow some extra sheep. you gotta, you got to plan for this all year. So suddenly God's giving them with these three feasts kind of an all-year cycle of work and patterns of behavior where it's not just about finding time to rest and take breaks. It's about making time or working hard so you can have these celebrations for God. So I'm going to work extra hard so we got a little more money that we can give to the church and pay for air conditioning because it's miserable in there on a Sunday morning. This is my dad's thing. He went to a church, it was just an old building, and the air conditioning broke and they just left it. So they'd come to church and sweat every morning. And my dad's a grumpy guy sometimes. And he got so irritated by it, he like went out, did some extra work so he could just come in and say, I'm going to pay for the air conditioning. And let's just sacrifice to the Lord what needs to be right. And I think he, the Lord uses that. And he uses people that get irritated to solve problems in the church. Not to complain, but to come in and say, look, here's the contract for the new air conditioners. Get them installed. Don't miss this blessing of these feasts. And I think that's the exciting part about Steph's praise where we get to hang out with Messianic Jews. I want to go to these priests or these feasts and see what they're all about. I think that's going to be a true joy in our life. And I might even be convinced to start keeping these feasts because they're really cool. But you start planning all year for these. And at Christmas season, it's a perfect time to think about it. Christmas is not just about December 25. We're already preparing for it, getting stuff up, buying presents, thinking of other people. What would so-and-so really like for Christmas this year? When you prepare for these kinds of holidays, it's a whole season that you do that. So these are all like that. All right? I love 
This next verse, verse 24, For I will cast out the nations before you and enlarge your borders. Neither will any man covet your land when you go to appear before the Lord, your God, three times in the year. So when he says everybody has to go down to the feast, the natural worry is, well, if we leave our land, somebody's going to come in and steal all our crops, right? Especially during this era, there's banditos on the road, stuff happens. So they're basically saying, like, don't worry about that. If you do this, people aren't going to steal your land or take it. So trust God when it comes to the politics, too. You won't have to worry about nations and borders and all that sort of thing. Just serve the Lord, and I'll take care of that. Verse 25, you shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leaven, nor shall the sacrifice of the feast of Passover be left until morning. Don't corrupt these things which I've given to you, right? No leaven. You can go back to Exodus 23 if you want to look at that. The first of the first fruits of your land you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God, and you shall not boil a young goat in the mother's milk. So keep Sabbath, keep things pure, follow these festivals. Here's your lifestyle for the year, and don't boil goats in their mother's milk, which is an odd thing. Don't hoard stuff. Give it to the Lord. Give it generously. Give it with a good heart. Later, this is going to be called a tithe to bring in the first fruits. That This is the beginnings of that concept of tithing to the church. And the milk thing, we, we heard this before. Um, that goes back to, what again, what the Canaanites actually did. It's one of the ways they would be really cruel is they'd take the thing that was supposed to give life, mother's milk, and they would kill people in it. Or they would kill the goat in it. And they did it with humans, too, from what we can tell. Don't taint your practice with this nastiness you see in the world, right? So God wants to bring an end to that. He wants to make this part of the planet where that stuff doesn't happen. God makes the covenant, makes it all by himself. And then notice God emphasizes things to do to replace the nastiness. And this is one of the things when you meet a brand new believer, especially believers that are really immersed in really weird cultures and subcultures, they got to replace that with something or they're going to go right back to it, right? And a lot of times when we deal with uh, addicts and, and like alcohol recovery and whatnot, one of the hardest things for al- former alcoholics to do is to replace the bar scene with some other scene. And if they can replace it, then they have a lot better chance of staying away from that stuff that was entrapping them before. So replacing it. So God's not just saying, I'm going to push the Canaanites out before you. He's saying, and I'm going to replace it with a different kind of lifestyle. So you're going to do these things with it. So God gives him all that stuff, and he says, um, write that all down, Moses, and Moses starts to write. Then Moses said to the Lord, write these words. (laughs) Write it down. For according to the tenor of these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. Amen. So he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water. He wrote on the tablets with the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. This is not Moses starving himself to death. He neither ate bread nor drank water. It seems like he would have gotten other kinds of sustenance. Or God was sustaining his body while he was in the presence of God. So he's going to make, I think this is kind of neat, it mirrors what just happened before. So Moses was gone for that amount of time, and they built a golden calf. What are they going to do when he's gone for another 40 days? And what's that going to look like? This time they don't make a golden calf, so we can move on with the story. Um, So he's going to do that. The tablets... These tablets that get cut are actually going to be the ones that sit inside the ark. So they just got made. Um, And the commandments here is the word dava in the Hebrew, which means speech or word. 
So I thought that was kind of interesting because it says the Ten Commandments, it's the Ten Words. And if you remember when we studied the Ten Commandments, a lot of the commandments were a single word in the Hebrew, right? Don't steal or, you know, it was kind of that one word thing. So it's the Word of God that you're going to remember, you're going to keep it. A lot like we're doing tonight. We're going to read the Word of God. And now Moses' face starts to shine. So I think this is the fun part of the chapter. Now it was so, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand, when he came down from the mountain, that Moses did not know that the skin on his face shone while he talked with him, or God. So when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. Have you ever run into someone like that? Their skin shines so much you don't really want to go that close to them? I have not. The word uh, raise or shine there is karan, and it's interesting when you look at that, if you click on that one, Alyssa, it actually means to emit or to send out or horns coming out of the head. So the light was coming off in a very visual kind of sense. Um, And if you look at really old third to fifth century paintings of Moses, he actually had horns. And people think, oh, this is like former demon worship. No, it's because the word meant horns of light, right? There was something coming out of his head that shone, right? Or his ears, his brain was shining out his ears or something like that. Um, But it's a word, you know, that they're trying to describe something that's spiritual. And that's amazing. There was a radiance that came forth from Moses in that sense. Um, And it makes it very clear that the face shone. It says it again and again. um, And that fear was the effect of it. So it's not the last time this is going to happen. In Acts 6.15 all that sat in the council looking steadfastly upon Stephen, remember when Stephen gave his defense, saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. Stephen's face started to shine when he was preaching God's word. The more time you spend in the presence of God, the more this effect starts to happen. And it's crazy when it does because it's a spiritual thing. Um, I think it's the joy and the peace of the Lord. If I stop having anxiety and worry and I stop having troubles all the time because I just trust in the Lord, suddenly there's a peace that comes about you. And that peace actually shows up in your face. I keep telling Steph, it's not bad to get old. It's bad to get old and be grumpy, right? If you're joyful, you start to shine in a kind of a spiritual way. And it's a hard thing to describe. I remember one of my coworkers, one of the professors at Bethel, she goes, Sean, the weirdest thing about you is it's like you come into work and it's like you shine. And I don't think she knew that she was saying something that's extremely a biblical concept. And I'm not trying to brag because I didn't know that was happening. All I know is I love the Lord and I'm a happy guy, right? But the other people see that and they're either drawn to it or they're terrified of it. Because why are you so happy? You must be faking it. You must be lying. There must be something where you're covering something up and there's suspicion. And people that have sick hearts, they don't understand what the shine is all about. They're scared of it. And the Israelites right now are still at that point. So it's like there's a light around you. And this is the coolest part. You are supposed to cast your cares on the Lord so that he sustains you. And he will never let your righteousness be shaken. Psalm 55:22. There's a promise that God has. And especially when Moses doesn't makes that point to say he didn't eat and he didn't drink. God was sustaining him. And when that happens, he's eating the nourishment that actually makes him shine. When God sustains you, you are awesome to other people in your life. And people can tell. Have you ever just met somebody and you're like, I know they're a believer. I can just tell. 
and it takes you a little while in conversation before you figure it out, but you're like, yeah, they were, I got it. It's because there's this peace and this joy that's really unique to people who spend time with God, especially 40 days and nights. And we're supposed to cast our cares and anxiety on God. First Peter 5, 7, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. And he's not going to let you come to trouble. Then Moses called to them. Oh, where's my other verse? I added this in. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Here it is. Put it in the wrong spot. No, that's not it. I think I printed an older version of this. Okay, somebody help me out. Go to the last chapter of Daniel. Because there's a promise. He's talking about the end of days. So Daniel, I think 12 chapters in the book of Daniel. How did that not get in here? I'm very, very sad. Now i got to make sure I add it in. You got it? Oh, how do you read that? This is why I supersize all my writing. Okay, this is the prophecy of the end of times. Daniel's a book of prophecy. Did I just lose your chapter? <laughs> uh, never since was there such a nation. Even at that time, all your people shall be delivered, found written in the book. People of the dust of the earth shall relight. Oh, there it is. Some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise shall shine. It's the same word. They shall shine like the brightness of the firmament and those who turn many to righteousness will shine like the stars forever and ever. Interesting, at the end of time, it's not just Stephen and Moses that shines. There's going to be an army of people on this earth that shine. And I think when you sit in a room and you look at other believers like we are right now, we're looking at those people that the Bible prophesied would happen. That when Jesus and the Holy Spirit reside in your heart, you start to shine to the people around you. And according to Daniel, there's going to be multitudes of people that just shine. They glow with the joy of the, and the presence of the Lord in their life. Kind of awesome, huh? Anyways, verse 31. Then Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the rulers of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. He had to convince them to come back. I like that, because it just said that they ran away from his shiny face. And he had to kind of say, yeah, come back. This isn't such a bad thing. Deal with my shiny face. Afterwards, all the children of Israel came near, and he gave them as commandments all that the Lord had spoken with him on Mount Sinai. Moses is now this kind of unique mediator. He's got visual evidence that he's talking to God, and it seems to be he has more separation from the people than he does from God. The closer we get to God, the harder sometimes it is to really convince people to come close to us when we're in the world. Afterward, all the children of Israel came near, and he came and gave them commandments that the Lord had spoken to them with Moses on Mount Sinai. Second point, he gave them commandments. When it says commandments in this verse, it's not the same word that we just saw with the tablets. That was the word of God. And this is Sava. It's not word, it's orders. <laughs> so Moses got the word of God on the tablets, but then when he gives them as commandments, he's giving them something to do. Moses isn't just a philosophizer. He's not Joseph Smith. He's not creating a religion. He's giving his people things to do and he gives them orders or tasks. Um, so Moses is not necessarily a spiritual leader here. He's actually kind of a political leader. He says, okay, time to get to work. We're going to build this tabernacle. We're going to do this. You're going to do that. You're going to do this. And he starts to issue commandments and he starts to become a very practical leader of his people. And when Moses, verse 33, had finished speaking with them, he put a veil on his face. But whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he'd take the veil off until he came out and he would come out and speak to the children of Israel, whatever had been commanded. 
And whenever the children of Israel saw the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone, then Moses would put the veil on his face again until he went in to speak with him. So God does kind of a miracle here with this shiny face thing. And he's showing the people there's a clear line of authority from God to Moses to them. And there's a veil that blinds the people from seeing the full glory of God. Why is the veil there? And this is kind of a key question because when he called them back and recruited them, he talked to them with shiny face. So it's not that they couldn't look at the shiny face. So why is there a veil and why does he use this veil as a tool? Um, it could say it's to keep people from being scared, but that's not what the Bible, it doesn't actually say that that's what it is in the Bible. Verse 33, and when Moses finished, he puts the veil on. So he would talk to them. He'd talk to God, he'd talk to them, and then he'd put the veil on afterwards. You see the order of that, right? Because your initial thing is, oh, the light is too much, but that's not the case. So it's almost like he's hiding something after he talks, like as maybe the light fades, he's putting the veil on so people can't see that the light is fading, right? Or something like that. And I'm not just saying that. Don't take my word for it. Go to 2 Corinthians 3 because Paul talks about it. And that's the reason Paul gives for the veil. But if the ministry of death written and engraved on stones, the commandments we just read about, if that was glorious, so the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away. How will the ministry of the Spirit not be even more glorious than this? For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds in much more glory. If Moses was glorious, so are the people of God that follow Jesus. For even when it was made glorious, it had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. These are confusing verses if you're not reading the Old Testament, right? It just makes no sense. But Paul's talking about this glory of God. I'll keep reading in Corinthians. For if what is passing away is glorious, what remains is more glorious. In other words, Paul's saying that that shine would pass away. It would fade. That that law of stone wasn't the final covenant, right? Therefore, since we have much hope, we use great boldness of speech. Unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face, Here's the reason, so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. But in their minds, they were blinded. For until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament, because the veil is taken away in Christ. The Old Testament won't make any sense to people that don't read the New Testament, right? They go together. If you don't understand Jesus, there's a lot of the Old Testament, like wearing the veil, that makes no sense and would have made no sense to the Jewish rabbis, but the rabbis pretended like they knew everything, and they wrote volumes to try to explain it all. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their hearts. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit is of the Lord, there's liberty, liberty. So Moses was great and glorious, but how much glorious is Jesus? How much more glorious is what we have? Then the very next verse, but with all, with unveiled faces, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as the Spirit, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. When the Spirit of God comes into your life, you shine. And you're going to shine more and more and more the more time you spend with God. Do your Sabbath, follow these cultural practices of faith pray, fellowship, study the word of God, you will begin to shine and it'll happen over time. 
The power of the word of God is that we can look at it now without veils. We can look at it with total understanding, right? That's amazing. That's glorious. There's a promise of that new covenant in Ezekiel 36, Jeremiah 31, and of course, Isaiah 59, if you just want to read about Jesus in the Old Testament, right? There's no veil on those chapters anymore. We can read Isaiah 59 and go, oh my goodness, this is talking about the crucifixion. It's hard to not see it. But before the crucifixion, you would have had a veil. It would have been really hard to understand. So I'll wrap up with one last thought. The idea of Emmanuel, Jesus is risen, Jesus is with us, God with us is Emmanuel. The idea that God is with us is a glory, and it's so much more. And we have this mirror that we can read the word of God and we can see ourselves and know our own heart. How close are we to this? How much are we messing around with um, materialism, with pride and ego? How much are we messing around with entertainment and wasted idle time, right? How much are we doing those things? That's a mirror we can hold up to ourselves. We shouldn't be condemned by that mirror. We should be inspired to spend more time with God because God's what transforms us, right? That's the new covenant. We're not doomed to death under the law. We're actually brought from glory to glory in the blessings of Jesus Christ. And that's our calling. It's the direction we should take. This whole chapter is God saying to Moses, okay, now your nation has sinned. Now we're in a covenant of grace, not in condemnation. And now the nation's going to go this direction and I'm going to clear the way for you. I mean, isn't that the summary of this chapter? And Moses hears that message and he comes down to tell the people and it's hard to even look at the guy because he's proclaiming this truth of God's word. And that's what he's going to do. So we're being transformed into that same image from glory to glory, just as by the spirit of the Lord. Amen. The old covenant imputes the lifestyle of death. The new covenant imputes the lifestyle of righteousness and life. And that's the beauty of it. So in the same way that these other kind of things, and we'll get more into the Canaanites later on when we get on, but there's a sickness in this world that we can run away from and be something different. And all we got to do is do those things that seem like absolute nonsense. Like instead of cherishing and hoarding our time, we give our time up to God. Instead of hoarding our money or what's going to become tithe, we give the first fruits to God. Instead of harboring our own entertainment, we do the feasts and the celebrations of God's kingdom, right? Celebrating Christmas is a calling in that sense. It's one of the feasts in our culture is this Christmas time celebration to remember what God's done. It's a really key time in our faith. Putting our heart and our worship and our joy into making cookie bakes happen, that's part of what we're called to do. It's the preparation for those festivals where we can bond and fellowship and do things. And when we do those things, it seems really weird. It's hard to say that making cookies is a holy thing, but it kind of is. And God calls us to these simple, basic things instead of these weird, extravagant things. Compare Christmas to New Year's in our society. And think of what celebration and preparation for Christmas does in our lives and in our families and in our lifestyle. And think about how people treat New Year's Eve and the preparation and the effects on the family and the lifestyle that that day has. And one seems to be a very godly holiday and one seems to be one that kind of pulls people away from God and does destructive things in people's lives. And it's a weird contrast. One will make you shine like the stars and one just doesn't and it kind of gets forgotten and when Moses leads his people he points you towards something he doesn't just say don't be a harlot he says do these things instead and be awesome and shine and Moses then represents that and models that for his people amen let's pray dear Lord and King help us to shine um, 
Help us to move from glory to glory, Lord, in our lives, that we just see every little thing God is doing and we can see what you are doing in our lives and we can share that with other people and see what God's doing and what you're doing in other people's lives. Lord, help us to be more like you and to spend time with you so that we can shine. Help us to celebrate your feasts, your festivals, those things that honor you. Help us to do it with our family and friends. Help us to be people that minister to one another, serve one another, lift each other up. Lord, help us to be people of unity and not dissension, that we can love one another in spirit and in truth. Uh, Lord, that you will guide us and you will lead us. Lord, help us to get the harlotry out of our lives. Lord, that we are people that seek after our own flesh and we just do it so naturally, Lord, and the flesh is so powerful. But Lord, we ask you to release us from that temptation, Lord, and to deliver us from it and uh, to deliver us from evil, Lord, so that we can be your children. Lord, we ask you each day, Lord, to provide for us so we don't have to worry about our stuff being taken if we don't tend to it all the time. That when we serve you and we set aside that time faithfully every week to remember you and serve you, Lord, that you're going to honor that. So help us, Lord, provide our daily bread for us so we don't have to be anxious about it. We don't have to worry. Lord, help us to be people of joy and peace and to do that in a season that is highly stressful with all the finals and stuff. And Lord, help us to do it in other parts of the country as Zach's going off to Texas, Lord, to just be people that shine and to bring glory to you. In Jesus' name we pray. We ask for your help. In Jesus' name, amen.